I'm Enrique Serna, and welcome to Conversations. In November, Chris Rakedahl was elected Washington State's new Superintendent of Public Instruction. He's a former Democratic State House member who represented the 22nd Legislative District for six years before he decided to give up that post to run for state schools chief. He joins me now to talk about the state of our state's public schools. And Mr. Superintendent, welcome. Good thank to have you, you for here. having me. Yeah, thank you. So how is this uh, new gig, as they say? It's outstanding. So OSPI is more than 400 employees. They are remarkable. We've had to do a lot of leadership changes to make sure that we sort of ushered in a new vision for customer service, if you will, to students and school districts and even policymakers. So the transition has been very good, but we are full swing because the legislature is meeting as we speak. And the legislature is focused on the issue of funding public education because there is a mandate there. They uh, have a self-imposed mandate of trying to get this done. Also having the pressure from the state Supreme Court and saying that uh, you need to get this done. As you look at the uh, funding uh, plans that have come out, uh, what's your uh, assessment? The governor's come out with his yeah. plan. The, both houses have come out with theirs, Republicans, Democrats. Yes. Yeah, so the good news is, unlike a year ago where some people were saying, I, I still don't validate the court. I still don't think we need to do this. There's nobody in that town who isn't saying our primary duty this year is to amply and fully fund our schools. They have very different approaches to this. Uh, we're trying to be very objective about it and find the strengths of each plan. Uh, the governor put out a very comprehensive, very balanced plan that I think would be a remarkable um, direction if we could stop now and go for it. But that's not the nature <laughs> of the business. Uh, the Senate Republicans also took a very dramatic approach to it in terms of a, of a different way to send money to schools. The strength of it is that it is trying to focus on populations that have historically not had uh, equal opportunity in our schools. I think it's a real compliment to them that they're trying to think about different ways to do things. It doesn't really add additional resources in any meaningful way, and, and it quite frankly does some tax burden shifts. So it's not perfect, but there are elements there that are positive. And of course, the House has come out and, and they are much more aligned with the governor, as you might imagine. Uh, but even they um, have some uh, pieces that are innovative and some that I think probably don't go far enough. So there's a great moment here where there's a lot of momentum and now we've all got to work hard to put it together. Is there a realization that they got to get it done? Because they got to get it done. I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's no really honestly in the last couple of years, there were lots of questions about whether the court was even valid and whether we could do this. And would economic growth just take care of all the resources we need? That is not the dialogue today. Today, the dialogue is we really do have to do something different to, to satisfy the court. And what I keep trying to sort of impart in the conversation is don't think about it as a court obligation. You can do that in ways that don't actually improve student achievement by just swapping the money around. Think about it as what will it take for Washington students to be successful and our state to be competitive? And in that regard, you do have to add resources and do it in different ways. Let's break down a little bit of what uh, both sides are offering here on the table. Um, as you mentioned, the Republicans have really come out with a kind of a unique thing where the real focus is on uh, the use of property taxes. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think there's a middle ground. So today, as you well know, we put a huge burden on rural communities to raise lots of local levy dollars. They don't have a lot of tax base. Their home values aren't nearly what they are in the Puget Sound. Those folks pay an extraordinarily high tax rate. So there's some validity in saying, ah, we got to equalize that a little bit. we got to make that a little more reasonable. The Senate probably goes a little too far and shifts the entire responsibility of funding uh, what's left in our schools to property tax. And in that regard, significantly raises property taxes in the central Puget Sound. Uh, Seattle you know, payers will pay 
hundreds and hundreds of dollars more. I think there's some recognition that this is where the economic growth has been, so it may not be inappropriate, but it's too simple. It's part of the solution. I think they probably made it too big a, a, of the solution. Yeah, and even though yeah. there is that great economic growth here, the fact is there is also an equity and affordability issue here that right. we have in this region because a lot of people can't live in Seattle and they're having to move elsewhere, right. so there's an issue there. Right. They try to address that with some housing allowances for educators, property tax um, exemptions for low-income and senior citizens and some others. And so they're sensitive to it. It's just a matter now of dialing in the right variables here and probably not relying so heavily on property tax, but a more balanced suite. And that's what the governor did. He picked a suite of revenue options that kind of asked everybody to sacrifice, not just the property owner. And the D's from what you've seen there? Yeah, so their plan really focused on the kind of investments necessary to change outcomes for students. That's the strength of it. They really did not identify their revenue sources, um, to be honest with you. So the weakness of their plan, and you know, I was a I was a six year lawmaker in that caucus, <laughs> and I love those colleagues, but but we're really good at identifying, I think, what the need is. And um, less willing to take the necessary political risk to say, and this is what it's going to cost folks. Um, taxes. Some taxes and some prioritization and some, some efficiencies, although that's really overstated in a state that's cut billions uh, in the last six or seven years. Uh, but this is the nature of the beast, right? The Senate has a proposal. The governor has one. The House now has one. And those need to come together. And there's really good elements in all of them. If we are focused on student outcomes and changing dynamics for communities who have really faced structural and systemic barriers, um, if we focus on that, they'll get to the right place. If we devolve this thing into just trying to satisfy a court and traditional Democrat versus Republican politics, it's going to take a long time and unfortunately not focus on the right stuff. So as the state school superintendent, the guy in charge of the public school system, um, where's your role in trying to get them to come up with a plan yeah. and, and do something that's going to meet the mandate, mm -hmm. uh, satisfy the court, and the public as well? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the answer is in your great question. It is not a, an official duty. Uh, that is clearly the legislature's role to pass this and the governor to sign. My job is to put an objective lens on it to say this is where I think the elements that each of you are dialing up will actually improve student achievement and get results. And this is where I think you're just being overly political. And I've delivered some of that testimony, and it's and it's easy for to hear in some ways and hard to hear in others. But we'll focus on what works best for students and school districts, maintain some core values like local control, but accountability. We'll bring an educator lens, understanding that they're going to bring a political lens, particularly to the first phase of this process. Um, and in the end, we'll just be very honest about what works and does not work. You have talked in some testimony that you've given um, that it's not just about the money here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there is more to it mm -hmm. and that the lawmakers need to look at, uh, I guess, the quality of what we're giving mm -hmm. our kids. Mm -hmm. Yes. Or not. So two metrics here that I'm really focused on, and it comes from an independent research group at Rutgers uh, Graduate Programs and a partner a research firm that they've used. They're really looking at the states and what, what do you really invest relative to the economy of your state? So it's not enough to just say, hey, Vermont spends a lot and, you know, New Mexico doesn't, therefore one's good, one's bad. Well, it's all relative to your economy. And in Washington, we have this booming economy and we're returning a much smaller percentage of that value back into our public schools and really our public sector. So so I'm very honest to say there is room for you to raise revenue, keep the economy booming. But if you do it, if you do that well, you got to put it in communities that need the support. Just sticking it in the existing formulas will, will 
clearly improve student achievement, but not the way we need it to. So we've got to focus on poverty, second language learners. We have to focus on, um, uh, quite frankly, recent immigrants because of the language issues. We have to focus it on uh, homeless students, foster youth, LGBTQ youth. When we look at the data and we know who's not achieving student uh, success, that is a call for us to do something different. So yes, it's about money, but don't just stick it into the existing system. Actually change where it goes and its purpose. One of the things that you have um, told lawmakers and others, I suppose you said this a lot when you're out campaigning for this job, is to also look at the vocational areas, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. you think are getting overlooked. They're overlooked. Um, there's a big energy about trying to solve that now. I think folks have realized we've we've oversimplified the system as a university for everybody process, and now we're re realizing the economy really needs more balance. There's some, again, resource needs that will help that for our career and tech ed programs, but then there's also this policy question of this high-stakes exit exam. And what I'm trying to get policymakers to understand is there are only three states using a high-stakes exit exam. It's not going well. You can still have standards and still have meaningful assessments that measure the progress of our system and our students without causing students to bail out of the system in their last year because they can't get over a test. It's a really bad economic model. And the truth is, because it's so university-focused, it's driving students away from career and technical education programs, the old vocational programs, and the new vocational world. They're steering away from it because they're not confident that those courses will lead them to the test result that they're required to get in order to graduate. So by virtue of this high-stakes test, you're kind of eating up CTE. You're making it a, a, a non-viable pathway, and we can change that. We can change that and actually improve student achievement for a lot more students. How did we get so hung up on testing? An oversimplification of people who believe that tests equaled standards uh, instead of putting them in their context. They're a dipstick. They're one measure. It's, it's one temperature check. Uh, but we got to this place where we were just convinced that um, we needed to make every student be at the same place 18 years after their birth. And that is just wrong. It's bad policy. Wiser people are now saying, okay, this went too far. Now we got to not max the pendulum out the other way, but kind of balance it. I come from a family of, uh, well, there are a lot of educators, a lot of teachers, my sister being one, her kids, um, and the frustration yeah. of, uh, again, the testing thing, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. which they all seem to say drives them crazy. Yep. Um, is Can you change that? Yeah, yeah, you really can. The new federal requirements, I'm, I'm going to hand an accountability plan to the U.S. Department of Education, notwithstanding its potential dysfunction. Uh, <laughs> but we owe them something in September, and, and, and that even those regulations do not require this high-stakes exit exam. So we have lots of flexibility in the state to do it differently. Uh, the sponsors of bills to delink the test right now are Republican sponsors uh, with Democratic support, so it's really not a partisan issue at all. We're trying to help the business community understand how they're going to get a better result by graduating more students in pathways they, they really care about. Because uh, if they insist on everybody in this sort of university track, you'll continue to have 20 and 25 percent dropout rates, and that's not helping anybody. So we really can change it. I would add that the research is really clear that we also have to invest in our educators. You have to honor the fact that young people may consider this profession, but in the marketplace that we're in today, particularly the Puget Sound, they have a lot of other options as young people. Uh, so you really have to change the dynamic, invest in teachers, and continue to invest in them, not just their salaries, which certainly need to improve, but also their professional development and their ability to take some risk. 
you want a teacher to say, you know, I could teach kids really high quality math if I could just get them in a construction trade, right? Or in a vocational program, I can do contextual learning and they need to be rewarded for that. But in today's environment, if that teacher isn't getting students over very narrow exams that are very academically oriented, then even the teacher feels the pressure of that. So we got to liberate our educators a little bit. Yeah, and I think we're also looking at uh, uh, many job possibilities out there or jobs mm -hmm. where people are reaching a retirement age in these vocational areas and then who is going to do that kind of work yeah. and the opportunities I think are there. I think Boeing's recognized that. They were on an engineering push for many, many years yeah. and certainly they needed more engineers and now they're seeing the aging workforce in, their, in the manufacturing and the machining world saying, wow, we need tens of thousands of workers over the next 20 years. And they all don't need bachelor's degrees. So they're really helping us work on both curriculum and programs in our schools to get high school students job ready when they graduate and straight into Boeing. And we know those are great paying jobs. Let's talk about um, opportunity or the lack thereof. And I guess what what's the term now has become opportunity gap. Mm-hmm. Not so much achievement gap. How did that change, by the way? <laughs> well, because achievement gap was a judgment, I think, on students saying they're not achieving. And when we really dug in, we realized these, these are amazing kids and what they're missing is opportunity. The system hasn't given them an opportunity to shine in the way that they're capable of. So we've moved the dialogue from sort of blaming the student, if you will, to saying the systems really have to accommodate better. So it's, it's, it is an opportunity gap. There's a lack of opportunity for students. And if you close that, then you will see greater achievement. So I think uh, sometimes we trip up on words in education, <laughs> but, but that's a pretty good change. Okay, yeah. so, but the opportunity gap is there. Yeah. And how extensive is it? And mm -hmm. um, I guess give me some examples of what we're we're, we're falling down. Yeah, so let's just talk graduation rates. You know, we're real proud of our state because we're inching up every year 1% uh, on average or so, and we're going to report those numbers pretty soon, and that has huge economic opportunity and implications. So it's very good, but when you disaggregate that, the question is, are we inching up in all the ways we expect to? Are we closing it for populations who have not been historically well served? On one extreme, you have um, Asian Pacific Islander students uh, who are at or exceeding uh, Caucasian white populations, African Americans just below. You go further enough away from that spectrum, and you see that our tribal communities are significantly below uh, Caucasians in terms of graduation. Uh, Latina, Latinos are somewhere in between. So it's not an equal opportunity system. We are not providing pathways for students and giving them the support they need. And particularly when you think about what we do in testing. I always say to folks, if you wanted to test math, we should test math. But if you're offering a computer-based test that is essentially English only, in communities where there are high Spanish speakers with who don't have access to technology, aren't we really just punishing the students for being in communities of poverty or communities who lack resources? That's not giving them equal opportunity, even though their math brains are probably just fantastic because they're taking more math than they ever have. That's a very specific example of how you got to change the opportunity and stop blaming the student on performance. And maybe pigeonholing the student because you're saying that they can't learn because right. that's that, that's not where they come from in their background. Right, right, so. right. So we're closing these gaps. The good news is we are seeing our communities of color um, achieving at faster rates uh, than our Caucasian students. But, but at this pace, this is going to take 20 or 25 years, and we don't have that luxury. We need everybody successful, everyone participating in the economy for Washington to stay competitive. So whatever Senate Republicans, House Democrats, and a governor do to keep advancing this thing, I will continue to push and say, but are you changing the dynamic for the students who need the most support today? That's the role that I'll play. Um, 
some districts are better off than others. Mm -hmm. And um, what can be done to try to give some balance to that? Uh, because obviously bigger schools maybe have more opportunity and maybe come from a bigger tax base than what a school in central and eastern Washington, small yeah. school system is. I haven't grown up over there. I see that. Yeah. Where do we bridge that? Well, our states use what's called a levy equalization process, and it's a little inadequate. In other words, we acknowledge that it's easy to raise lots of money in wealthy urban school districts, and so they get to use this low tax rate, and it's harder in these rural communities who don't have tax base. And then the state comes along and throws a little extra money at these rural communities and says, well, we'll just sort of equalize this. It's still not fair because you're not equalizing where that students have equal opportunity, which is why there is validity in changing the tax code a little bit. You just cannot rely so heavily on local property taxes uh, because you will never create that equal opportunity. This is where I think the Senate, even though um, there's lots of problems with some of the detail, conceptually they've said we need to we need to simplify the tax code. It should be more level across the state so that we have uh, the ability to generate resources from areas that have more wealth and make sure that it goes to communities in a more uh, fair and equal manner. What a, what a Seattleite should ask is, yeah, but am I going to get a big property tax increase and not get additional resources or even the opportunity to raise more in my community? So one of the things the Senate should give up on if they stick with this approach is don't cap the local communities from raising additional money for themselves if they want to uh, for things above basic ed. So, so this is our challenge, and we'll get there. It will be tough, but this is it. Uh, there is a tax fairness question in order to get to educational fairness. Besides money, uh, what is your biggest concern about Washington State schools, public schools? Well, I have a lot. Um, and it's, and, I, and if I, I guess if I had to boil it down, it's that the systems, I think, are not prepared, regardless of money, the systems are not prepared to truly appreciate um, how diverse our students are becoming and what they will need to be successful and find cultural relevancy in their schools. So that's a complicated answer because that means bringing cultural competency and understanding to existing schools. It means a very intentional process of hiring folks differently. You have to have from principals and school boards all the way to our classroom teachers to our uh, classified employees, you have to have a more diverse staff mix so that students are reflected in their schools. And again, that's been improving slightly, but not nearly at the pace that our student diversity has. So that takes a little extra money, but what it mostly takes is a very different commitment to how we certify teachers and who we recruit. And so we'd be really hollow in this process to add more money and not contemplate how we're going to recruit a more diverse um, educator workforce. And that's a very um, light conversation right now. It's too light. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's happening in communities that see it, but policymakers, the Professional Educator Standards Board, the legislature, I'm not seeing enough uh, energy about that. And, and, and when people talk about reform, it shouldn't just be about ratcheting up more tests. You know what would be a dramatic reform? 
changing who's in classrooms. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That would be one of the most powerful reforms you can have. And it's just a, it's too thin a conversation. We used to have conditional scholarships for students. We used to have some targeted stuff. The state tore a lot of that out uh, between 2009 and 2012 with the fiscal crisis. We're not in a fiscal crisis anymore. We're booming in the Northwest. That's why as we contemplate tax changes and additional revenue, you gotta deploy it differently. And some of it is teacher recruitment and staff recruitment. And it takes very intentional work. And I'll, I'll argue that government isn't the best ones to do that. We have communities who know how to do that better. And so more money to our community-based organizations in that effort would be very powerful. Is it the responsibility of administrators out in those districts maybe to try to bring, particularly where they might have um, students of color that have gone off to college where they, mm -hmm. hey, come back? Mm -hmm. So yes, absolutely. And the good ones will even tell you that the recruiting pool is really thin. In general, teachers, for example, we've lost uh, 25, 30 percent of, uh, of the capacity in our teacher colleges. The students are just saying, hey, this is not my thing, right? They're seeing teachers getting beaten up. They're seeing that the salaries are stagnant. So we have an overall volume problem, and then within it, it's not diverse enough. And so state policy needs to change. Administrators need to be more intentional about the work. Our colleges and universities, I think, should be spending energy pulling these great students uh, in their colleges and universities into their teacher education prep programs. Um, and this is tough, but the private market has to help too. They see the value of it, so they're out there promising students enormous opportunity in software and bioengineering and, and you know all kinds of things. And we need to say to them, and we also need them to teach. <laughs> so are you okay with us having a more equitable tax code that puts more resources in school districts so that we can pay these folks? Um, if you're a young Latino student or a tribal student or an African-American young man, and you think, I, I, I have options here, we better create a marketplace where teaching is a viable option. Because if it's a ten or fifteen or $20,000 discount to your other options, you're going to pick something else. And that's our challenge. At the federal level, there is so much going on right now. <laughs> and that's an understatement, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Well, I was trying to be diplomatic. Um, what are your concerns? Because, and, and how particularly it affects uh, our state schools or potentially could affect our state schools. We have a lot of kids that uh, are, uh, you know, from families that are undocumented. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Much fear in those communities. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, give me your thoughts on what's, what's happening there and how you see it. Well, I had this great hope a couple years ago as Senator Murray was working with Senator Lamar Alexander from Tennessee to rewrite this, the, the federal accountability system. They clearly got Congress in a bipartisan way to shift to a more flexible system, state control, local control. I was, I was optimistic following, quite frankly, Arne Duncan's administration, where he was using money to try to leverage his reform agenda over states. In the desperation that was the housing collapse of 08 and 9 and 10, the U.S. Department of Education was coming into states with bags of money saying, hey, do you want some help with your budget? And if you do, you got to take our forms of, you know, our versions of reforms. And I don't think they were very good. They were trying to control too many details, trying to tell us how to evaluate our teachers. So then this wave of reform comes from Patty Murray, and I thought, okay, this is decent. And even through the White House campaign, um, candidate Clinton was talking about maintaining flexibility, and even candidate Trump was saying smaller federal role, keep the states in control. However, transition team Trump uh, did not speak the same language, and his nominee for U.S. Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, is clearly somebody who's worked a very aggressive school privatization agenda. She has 
virtually no background in public education, not herself, not her children. She has no formal credentials in it. She knows nothing about the passion and the commitment and the democratization of our society through public education. She only knows the marketplace she wants. And I'm deeply worried that she won't have the power to come in and change things overnight, but like the last administration, she could grab big pools of federal dollars, hold it over the states and say, you give me the reforms I'm seeking in order to keep getting the money. And, and maybe we have the fortitude today to say no, but the next fiscal crisis in our state, the next downturn, I would worry that policymakers would say, yep, we'll take the money and those terrible reforms. And I think that'd be a tragedy. Anything being done to uh, uh, communicate to those, those communities, immigrant communities that, that are feeling a lot of fear right now? There's a lot of work being done at the local level. One of the contemplations we have is to is to figure out how we can add value to support our school districts to say, remember, <laughs> the state controls this stuff. We are not immigration enforcement officers. We are not interested in, your, in you taking any role like that. Our job when a student walks into our schoolhouse, no matter who they are, we do not ask. We do not make judgment about that. We simply serve students, and that's our job. And so we're reminding districts of that, and, and at this point, you know, we'll see if there needs to be something more formal about that. I need to see personally what the confirmation process looks like for the Secretary of Education and, and if she gets approved, and that's very much in the air right now. Yeah, it as we speak, split. It, it yeah. is very up there. We need to see the first couple signals that they might make. Um, I, I don't want to be overly partisan, but this administration seems to be willing to use lots of agencies in the federal government to enforce uh, whether it's immigration policy or trade policy, we simply will not use our schools to do this. It's not appropriate. And Washington may need to be very aggressive. Washington, Oregon, California need to, to be very aggressive about this. We have a culture on the West Coast of not being very aligned with using the federal government to enforce reforms that we think are inappropriate. So uh, I'm prepared to be very aggressive about it, but we need to learn a little bit more. What we don't need to do is react in a way that causes more scare uh, for our students. Uh, but it's very real. It's very real in communities. They are worried about it. They should be worried about it. And we are prepared to put the strongest defense that we can. Um, I was, found a story that came out just uh, last couple of days talking about the number of homeless students mm -hmm. in Washington State mm -hmm. schools. Nearly 40,000, according to your office. Yep, yep. That is a huge, huge number. It's a huge number. Uh, it's been growing aggressively, in part because of the reality of housing, and you mentioned that earlier, partly because we're a lot better at capturing that data, and, and I would argue it's probably still understated a little bit. Um, and there's, unfortunately, political wars about that. There are folks who say, hey, unless they're sleeping under a bridge, they're not homeless. If they've got a place to stay. But as a kid in my ninth grade year who had seven places I lived over a 14 or 15 month period of time, I always had a roof over my head, but I didn't feel the comfort of a home. I, I felt the dislocation of not necessarily knowing where I was going to land until my brother took me in for a year. Hmm. Th that's a form of homelessness that disrupts a student's ability to achieve academically because A, there's the worry about where they're going to be. And then there's the reality that if they're moving in couch surfing, they may be uh, going in and out of multiple schools. And what we know from our foster youth is that multiple placements in a given year absolutely has a correlation to student uh, performance. You can't, 
you cannot learn in the in the dis um, the dislocation of where you physically live if you're constantly moving. So it's real. Policymakers have stepped up. We've got a little bit of resource from last year that's helping us identify and create resources. It's minuscule compared to the problem. I'm really proud of districts who have said as part of their comprehensive student support services, it's not just about more counselors necessarily. They are doing homeless student liaisons. They are doing parent outreach coordinators. They are creating those networks within our social safety net so that students get help right away. We have amazing schools and amazing professionals who are trying to do the work. But as we started this conversation, if you're going to go invest billions of dollars more to create more student achievement, it isn't just about pouring it in the existing system. We have the ability to take some of that money and focus on homeless youth and foster youth and those who are not being served very well. So this is a big darn deal. I don't think the marketplace will change uh, in a material way where we will not see this grow. Uh, housing affordability in the Puget Sound in particular makes this even more of a crisis in the next couple of years. Can I ask you your background, mm -hmm. as you mm -hmm. mentioned there? Uh, youngest of eight. Both my parents had an eighth grade education. They both dropped out after the eighth grade. My father was very proud. He said, I went one day of high school in my ninth grade, so I went further than your mother, which I think is kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> but no formal education. Uh, youngest of eight, uh, some alcohol abuse. And, and, and my oldest six siblings spent a little time in the foster care system themselves uh, with very different experiences. Uh, I was fortunate enough to avoid that because I was born after my family reunified. But I come at the world through a lens of poverty, and uh, it's sort of why I'm a coup, right? We we always fight for the underdog, right? <laughs> yeah, we're both yeah, coups, yeah, yeah, by yeah, the way. Yeah. <laughs> Love the purple and gold, but yes. I was always going to that university yeah. where I thought it was a more intimate environment, uh, had a little tighter relationship with students, and a little bit of the underdog mentality. Yeah. So that's that's my whole my whole career. Yeah, and how has that molded you in uh, as you take on this job? It's everything. You just never escape the lens in which you start. Um, I, I like to think that I've gotten a pretty amazing education through WSU, a graduate degree, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, graduated with honors. I've, I've used the most of my public education, but I, you never escape being that kid who shopped with food stamps and that perspective of a system that gave me amazing opportunity with lots of white male privilege without question. But you never lose the perspective that if the system can meet kids where they are, they can change lives. And so you just run through walls. You, every day in the job is an opportunity to break down barriers and run through walls. And maybe it's not, you know, for, for students um, in my circumstance anymore the same way. But it is for Latinos. It is for tribal students. It is for our gay students. It is for our homeless youth, our foster youth. They need an equal opportunity. We can do this. We're making progress, but we can speed it up and, and, do, and do more things. But that's that delicate walk between social justice and working with a very political legislature who also has to see victory back in their districts. Mm -hmm. And lots of them don't see that stuff the same way. So trying to treat them with respect and get them their interests, but win in the end on the big, on the big plan. That's what we're doing. And are you an educator in that respect as well? I think so. I think uh, once you're in a classroom, you are always an educator and you're always thinking about um, what I always say is great teaching is life by analogy. You always have to make connections for students in ways they can relate to. That's what I'm doing on the Hill all the time is saying, I know who you are. I know how conservative your community is. I know you got here by being sort of anti-government. However, you're moved by economics. So if I can show you that a change in investment would have more students graduate in your community, fewer of them on public assistance and more of them filling uh, vacant jobs, wouldn't that be a good investment? 
So I give them the language of love that they need. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep giving it. Yeah. State School Superintendent Chris Rakedahl. Uh, good conversation. Thank you uh, for stopping by. Go Cougs. Thank you. Go Cougs. All right. I'm Enrique Cerno. We'll talk more next time. And this has been Conversations. To hear more podcasts from KCTS 9 Digital Studios, visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.